0: If you could stand and turn to Philippians, we're going to be reading um, Philippians 1, starting in verse 9, and go through verse 26. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and sincere. And without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I will rejoice... Yes, and will rejoice. For I know that it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit. From my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. You may be seated. Good
1: morning. Good morning. It's good to uh, see everyone this morning. Everyone awake this morning? Good, good. Well, I hope that we're awake as we have God's Word open before us, and trust that uh, what we're going to read this morning in verses twelve through eighteen of chapter one uh, will be very beneficial, very instructive for us, very helpful. ...for us as we live out these days that the Lord has given to us. So, uh, let us pray and we'll dive in here to the text. Lord, I pray for this uh, church family here at Hope in Christ. And I pray that uh, her love would abound yet more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I pray that this church may approve the things that are excellent... In order that she may be sincere, genuine, pure, without offense till the day Christ returns. Father, I pray that you would see to it that each vessel here is filled with the fruit of righteousness. That fruit that speaks of the justification, having been saved, having been washed by the blood, that past event of what Christ did and accomplished for us at the cross. I pray that everyone here would be filled with that fruit, pointing to what you did long ago for us. But Lord, I also pray that the church would be filled with the fruits, the evidences of righteousness, which come by way of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that all we do here in this body, would be done to the glory and praise of who you are. Lord, you are great. We've already worshipped in song this morning, singing about your greatness and how it's unsearchable. We thank you, Father, for your great love toward us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Have your way just now, Lord, as we have your word open. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, through your spirit, and teach us, Lord, what you would have us to know this morning from this text here in Philippians. I pray in the name of Christ, our Savior, amen. I'd like to begin our time this morning submitting some names, and I'd like you to think about these names and what these names have in common. It's possible these names have a few different things in common, but I'm going after something specific here this morning. I'll give you a few of these names. Joab, Haman, uh, the Pharisees, in large part, especially during their time when Jesus was around. Pilate, Gehazi, Eli, King Saul. If you think about those names... One of the things that comes to the surface is at various points in their lives, and for some it characterized a large portion of their life, they live their lives for personal gain, for what we might call selfish ambition. Motivated to act based upon the question, what's in this for me? What what can I get out of this? Self seeking. You know, motives don't always reveal themselves neatly to us. Titled the message this morning, The Gospel Motivator. The Gospel Motivator. And motives. Don't always come wrapped up in nice, neat packages, easily identifiable. You know, when they're little, it's pretty easy to see the motives, isn't it? You know what happens as we grow older? We still have a lot of those motives. We just do a lot better job of packaging them. We do a lot better job of hiding them. Well, after all, we're growing, we have some experience, we have some wisdom. We're not going to do it like perhaps a two, three, four-year-old would do it. Motives can lurk beneath the surface for quite a long time. Motives address the why behind what we do. Why are you doing what you're doing? There's a motive. What's the driving force behind your actions? Your motives impact your action steps, do they not? Really, this is the big idea this morning. Gospel motivation changes everything we do. There's a reason I believe Paul when he's writing to Corinth, says, that talking about a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. You are a new creation. New like never before, is the idea. We become that way when we start to understand and operate from the perspective that gospel motivation, when the gospel is our motive for doing what we're doing, it changes everything. The old and the new look completely different and that's the way it's intended to be well what is it that changes if we're saying from the text that this gospel motivation changes everything the question then what changes when your life is motivated by the gospel what changes Kind of a precursor to this question. I think it's important to look at a few scriptures from the life of Jesus. And I want to give you a couple from Paul because Paul is the one who's in prison writing this letter to the church at Philippi. But, but just a couple quick scriptures to give us a little context here of this question and this theme. Jesus in Matthew 10, he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Luke 22:42 Jesus is about to go to the cross and he says, "Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me." Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. John 15 Again, hours before the cross, In verses 20 and 21, Jesus says to his followers, Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But he goes on, he says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know him who sent me. And just one chapter later in 16, verse 33, Jesus says... These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus, on many occasions, this is just a snippet of scriptures, is talking about hardships, talking about trouble, talking about suffering, talking about persecution that's going to come to one who bears my name, he says. Then we look at the life of Paul and in Acts chapter 9, which I believe is really one of those asterisk verses in the life of Paul to be able to identify what is it in Paul. Why does Paul do the things that he does? Why does he operate? What are his motives? Well, when the Lord got a hold of his life, his life changed. In Acts 9, there was a drastic change, wasn't there? And in Acts chapter 9... The Lord is speaking with Ananias in the house of Ananias and he's he's speaking to him. And Ananias is trying to figure out and trying to certify that, that God, are you sure you have the right person here? I mean, after all, this Saul was the guy who was persecuting the church. God, are you sure you've got the right one? And in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, God says, go for." Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I'm going to show him how many things he's going to have to go through these trials, these hardships, these beatings, these stonings. That really comprises the suffering that comes to Paul when we read his missionary journey accounts. And Paul is about to go to Jerusalem. He's meeting with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he says, I go now bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Listen to what he says. Listen listen to the motivation here coming out. His motive. What's what's he all about? Why is he doing these things? None of these things, he says, move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he he recites this. He's passing these things on to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Notice he says that the fight that he fought was a good fight. It was a good fight. Why is it a good fight? Because it was for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was good. snapshot from Jesus in the life of Paul tells us something about suffering and persecution. Jesus spoke of it. He said it's coming. Paul's life was characterized by this suffering for the name of Jesus. And the motives of both Jesus and Paul center on carrying out the Father's will in their lives. Death was no obstacle for either one. Their lives were thoroughly soaked with gospel motives. What would the Lord desire? What would the Lord want? What would the Lord have me say? Where would he have me go? See, as we open the text up to Philippians 1, 12 through 18, my hope is that each one of us here leave today thoroughly soaked as well with a gospel motivation, not a selfish motivation. One lives for someone else, that being the Lord Jesus, and the other lives for self. One strives to give God glory, the other strives to give Me, glory. Now, of course, you wouldn't tell anybody that. And that's the subtle danger in all of what we're talking about. Is that you would go to great lengths to do something, maybe an act of service in the name of the Lord, but you're doing it to shine the spotlight on self. No, you wouldn't tell anyone that. But deep down, that's why you're doing what you're doing. You like it when people like you. You like it when you are the one being praised. Gospel motivation changes everything. So what changes? What is it that changes when your life is motivated by the gospel? Okay, three things from the text this morning. You can follow along. I've got the three points up here on the board. We'll talk through those. We'll we'll walk through them. Gospel-motivated living changes how we view our circumstance. How we view our circumstance. Look with me at verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren... That the things which happened to me have actually, that's that's a key word you might want to underline that word. That's a pivotal word in that verse. Have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's circumstance, what is it as we open the letter here? We know that Paul's circumstance, he's writing this letter and he is in the midst of what? Prison, right? He's under house arrest. He's in prison. He's chained. He's got Roman guards that are constantly on the watch taking care of him. So his circumstance, let's understand, his circumstance, his situation as he writes this letter is prison. Literal prison. House arrest. You know, I was thinking about this idea of prison. I was thinking about a lot of people uh, around our country today uh, and close by in our country today. And I was thinking about the people in Texas. And I was thinking about the people in Florida. And I was thinking about the people in Puerto Rico. People who have recently been hit by hurricanes. Their house is destroyed. Their stuff's gone. And I imagine that there are many people in those areas feel like currently they are in a prison. What am I going to do now? How am I ever going to recover from this one? All of our stuff's gone. And and they're chained to, some of them, hopelessness. Think about your own circumstance for just a moment. Maybe you're not chained as Paul to a Roman soldier nonstop. But is there a circumstance in your life that feels like it's attached to you? And it just won't let go. Maybe it's your health, long term sickness, illness. And maybe the prison there is this prison of frustration. Why can't I get any better? Maybe it has to do with your work this morning. It's a prison of worry, it's a prison of anxiety, it's a prison of fear, prison of not knowing. Could be long-term family conflicts. This prison that you're in the midst of may be a prison that is characterized by bitterness and disappointment. Maybe you've been crying out to the Lord, how long is this gonna continue, Lord? And for you, it seems like a prison. You're, you're, You're in the middle of this and you don't see any way out. Maybe on a little bit of a lighter note, for some of you, you think of school in this regard. All this work, you just don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And you feel very much attached to it. But your attachment to it comes with a, a particular mindset that's not filled with what we're talking about here in Philippians. Joy. Remember full-time joy? Full-time joy. That doesn't mean you can set that aside when we do our schoolwork. Maybe your prison is your debt. We're never going to get out from under this and you're attached to it. Maybe you're here this morning and and your prison is is something that, that would tie into this feeling of being uh, inferior, uh, smallest, or, or the least, or the youngest, or the, the one who feels like they're just not equipped, they're not educated. For some of you, those things may be your prison, your circumstance that you find yourself in. And you've, you've, been, you've been really dealing with it. You've been struggling with that. What do I do with this? Paul says here in verse 12, I I want you to know, brethren, that that what's actually happened to me has has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. I want you to know. That's a phrase that is used quite often. In fact, I want you to know. This is something he really desires for the church to know because, you see, they had perhaps heard a certain report from the messenger Epaphroditus about Paul's status. And now he's saying right here is he's giving his own update on how he's doing in prison. He says, hey, church, I want you to know. I really want you to know. That the things which happened to me, the things regarding me or my affairs, I want you to know about my affairs as I sit here in prison. By the way, let's be reminded that he is there in that Roman house arrest. We we read about this in the book of Acts. His imprisonment, he says, as he's on trial, is for the hope of Israel. In Acts 28 20, the hope of Israel, he says, I am bound with this chain. In the last two verses of Acts 28, the way the book ends, Paul is dwelling in the house. Text says, For two whole years in his rented house, he received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now, you might think he had it good perhaps in comparison to his days back in Philippi when he was in the inner cell. Yes, he did have it good, but he's still in prison. He's still attached to guards. He still has zero privacy. Not a real pleasant situation. Paul says, these things that have happened to me, where I find myself in prison, these things have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, my chains Contrary to what you might think, my chains have not halted the gospel work, but they've advanced it. The gospel has made headway into Rome. The gospel has advanced amidst obstacles. In fact, that's the idea of the word furtherance. Has in mind a progressing, has in mind an advancing. It's from a word which actually means to cut before. And it's thought to have been used of an army of pioneer woodcutters which preceded the regular army and they would cut through an impenetrable forest making possible the advance of the army into regions where otherwise it would not have gone. To cut forward. They've advanced the gospel. Hey, I want you to know church... What's happened to me has actually cut a path forward for the gospel to go where it wouldn't have gone had I not been here. I want you to know. One writer goes on to define this and says that this furthering of the gospel is an advancement in spite of obstructions and dangers which would block the path of the traveler. You see, when your life is set before the Lord as a living sacrifice, you place yourself at his disposal to use you however he might deem best. This might include a season of trials, a period of difficulties, a stretch of persecution perhaps, as we see in the life of Paul. But know this, when you are motivated to live for the gospel's sake, it's going to change how you view your circumstance. Okay? It's going to change. Corinthians 9 23 Paul is writing and he says now this I do and he's talking about how I come alongside the weak right I, I, I'll, I'll make myself weak for the weak I'll, I'll make myself you know to the Jew I'll come alongside them I'll, I'm going to be why why does he do these things to win them to the gospel this I do he says in nine twenty three, for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you Paul does what he does for the gospel's sake well, when we're talking about the gospel at the core, we're talking about the preaching and the teaching of Christ, the one who died for our sins, the one who was buried and the one who three days later was raised to life. And we're also talking about including when we say this gospel. And I believe this is a large part too of what Paul brings forward is he's preaching the gospel. He's talking about the lordship even now in the present tense of Jesus Christ in one's life. What difference does it make? I think that's what he's, what he's preaching, what he's talking about. It's Paul, for some two years, we see in Acts, he's chained to a guard. Now, people, it's true, are, are able to come and go and hear him preach and teach, but he's chained, he's imprisoned, he's under house arrest, he's limited in his movements. It's a pretty bleak situation. Paul's circumstance is gloomy. His circumstance is Chained to this revolving door of guards, Paul had every opportunity to complain, to be bitter, to blame others for his situation. He could have started a gossip trail indicting his fellow Jews. Could have blamed Rome for the mess that he was in. His circumstance was quite unfavorable. I don't believe there's anyone here who would choose this circumstance. Not a pleasant place to be. Chained to a Roman guard 24-7. But it's right here in prison, in the midst of a difficulty, in the midst of hardship and trial, gospel motivation changes everything. When your reason for living is for the gospel's sake, this will change how you view your circumstance. You remember, there's a few people that, that came to mind as I was thinking about this particular point. I thought of Daniel, how he found himself in the lion's den. I, I thought of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when confronted with a fiery furnace. Now, think about these circumstances a lion's den. What was, what was the whole goal of the lions? What, when someone got thrown into the lion's den, they weren't typically thrown into the lion's den to just pet them. Oh, big, nice kitty. They were thrown into the lion's den to be killed. When someone was thrown into the fiery furnace, that circumstance was hot. In fact, in this case, seven times hot, right? And yet, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem not to be all that fearful about dying, because, you see, they had this incredible faith in their God. And, and I think as we, we translate all of that, we see what the scripture has to say about lots of different folks. How about Jonah? Remember his circumstance? He finds himself in the belly of a fish. And he prays. And he comes to the conclusion and understanding that salvation is from whom? From the Lord. How about Hosea? How about his, how about his circumstance? Being called to an unfaithful spouse? Marry her. Think about the circumstances of different ones in the scripture. How certain ones handled those circumstances. Jesus himself gives us the ultimate circumstance. After going through a mockery of a trial, he's nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers. The Bible says that for the joy set before him, he did what? He endured the cross. He endured the cross, scorning its shame sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. You see, Jesus in the Bible is deemed our good shepherd, and he lays down his life at the cross. He becomes our substitute, atoning completely for our sins, carrying out the redemptive plan of his father. Listen, the prison, whatever that prison experience might be for you. For Paul, it was a literal house arrest prison But your prison might be some other circumstance that's going on right now. And and you probably, as I'm speaking, can identify what circumstance it is in your life. You need to know, however bad that circumstance may be, it's not the end of the story. Paul says, hey church, I want you to understand something. Whatever Epaphroditus might have told you about my imprisonment... I want you to know something. My chains have actually served to cut forward a path for the gospel. Of all places, God is using me in prison to further his work. Now, this says a whole lot about God and his ability to open doors in the toughest circumstances. It speaks to his faithfulness because you see, as we learned a few weeks ago, the God who began a good work in us is going to complete the work. He's going to complete it. Guess what? He doesn't need... This is wonderful about God. God doesn't need a favorable circumstance to carry out and complete his good work in you. Isn't that good? But see, here's the problem. Sometimes, in fact, probably oftentimes, we think that we have to have a favorable circumstance in order to be effective for God. We have to have a a, a favorable circumstance in order to move the gospel forward. Gospel motivation is the driving force of the apostle. He's about seeing the kingdom of God advance. Notice at the end of Acts 28, that's exactly what he's doing while he's in prison. He is preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. Perhaps this morning it might be helpful for you to write out a circumstance of late where the Lord has had you. See, when the gospel is your motivation for living, how you view your circumstance begins to change. Are you willing to allow God to use you however he might see fit through your circumstance? Will you submit to him up front, asking him to change your current Perspective of this circumstance that you find yourself in. You see, submitting to him up front, it's, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things where if we say that we're going to, we like the idea of it, but because of our circumstance, I can't do it right now. Uh, when I get out of this circumstance, then I'd be glad to follow you, God. No, no. Submit to him right now, up front, whatever, wherever, however, see, the gospel motivates us and it changes us in the midst of our circumstance. Even something as dire and seemingly hopeless as a prison cell. Perhaps our prayer would be, Lord, I want the gospel to motivate my entire being. Help me to see my circumstances through your eyes. How can I advance your gospel in my current circumstance? D.A. Carson writes these words. He says, put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations and misunderstood motives. All of these things are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. Gospel-motivated living changes how we view our circumstance. But according to the text here, it changes something else. Not only our circumstance, but how we define our influence. How we define our influence. Gospel-motivated living changes how we define, define our influence. Look at the text with me, verses 13 and 14. So that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What if Paul, upon being arrested at Philippi, go backwards to Acts 16 determined that he was no longer of any use for the Lord and his work? What if upon arriving in Rome, sentenced to house arrest, what if he'd settled for just keeping the peace during his stay, waiting it out, being a nice guy, hoping that his good behavior would get him out soon? Well, see, Paul is a great example in the scriptures of someone who saw is every situation as an opportunity to exert influence. You know, it's been said that leadership is influence, right? We are influencing, every single one of us are influencing those around us each day, whether for the good, whether for the not so good, right? Paul always seemed... To maximize his opportunities. Wherever he travels. He's looking first. To advance the gospel. That's the first thing. He's looking to advance the gospel. He's clear about influencing others. Toward the name of Jesus. Are you clear. About advancing. And speaking the name of Jesus. To those you come in contact with. When the gospel serves as. Motivation for your living, it's not only going to change how you view your circumstance, it's going to change how you define your influence. The two are intricately connected. Paul didn't stop trying to influence others for Jesus because of his prison circumstance. Instead of seeing his circumstance as negative, a place to just get out of this as quickly as I can... Paul views it as an opportunity to influence those around him for the gospel. And so think about this. Having just been beaten with rods and placed in an inner cell in Acts 16, Paul probably wasn't doing all that great physically. How many of you agree with that after being beaten, right? Been beaten. Probably didn't feel very good. Probably nursing some wounds a little bit. And yet the scripture tells us in Acts 16, 25... That at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I love the last line. And the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. Paul was gospel-minded even after being beaten. He has the wherewithal to lift his voice in song and to pray aloud to the God of heaven. And the prisoners were listening. There in that Philippian jail cell... The two guys that had previously just been beaten were spending their time at midnight singing and praying to God. This gospel motivator was in those guys, it was in them. Paul has influence on his mind. He's more concerned about how he might influence his newfound cellmates with the gospel than he is nursing his wounds. He's not in the cell pouting. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not trashing the guards who just beat him. He's not crying foul about his jail time. He's not self-absorbed, but he is gospel motivated. And we'll see next week that Paul's life was in some ways indestructible. What do you mean? He says to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. He isn't consumed with the fear of dying at all. Being in Christ, he spends his days consumed with stewarding his influence. Sharing with others the good news message of the Messiah and the hope of eternal life, which comes only through that one name. You know the one name, right? Only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That one name, was, Paul was consumed with that. Do so you think about that, perhaps a, a question or two that comes to mind. Have you, have you been restricting your influence in any way for the Lord and his kingdom? Has the advancement of the gospel been short-circuited in your life because you've set a lid? Listen, because you've set a lid. You've put a cap on it. You've set a lid on where and when and to whom you will influence others with the gospel. Have you put a cap on... Your influence. That's a pretty important question. It's one that hit me right between the eyes. I'm looking at this text. Have I been my own worst enemy here in this? (laughs) If my circumstance, however painful, however difficult it is, if God can and will, he promises to complete his work in us, if God is going to grant us influence, even in those circumstances, I must be careful and cautious about putting a lid where God's not put a lid. Perhaps we put the lid on this influence in our lives because we, we just, it's too hard, it's, it's too difficult, or I just don't want it. There well, are two kinds of influence spoken of here in the text. The first one is influencing, influence to the lost in verse 13. It's become evident to the whole palace guard, to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. It's become evident to the whole palace guard. Depending on your sources, that might include nine to 10,000 soldiers. This was a group of soldiers that was directly responsible for guarding the prisoners of the emperor. And to this group, it's become clear, it's become manifest, it's it's come to light in order to be seen as it is. That's the idea of the word evident. This group, the palace guard, has recognized that Paul's chains are in Christ. Just as an example, have you thinking about this evident, verse 13, it's become evident it's become evident to all the palace guard and to all the rest. I'd like you to think for just a moment uh, of spending some time. If, if one of you were to come over and spend some time with, with me and not just paying a visit but staying at my house for an extended period of time and really not even just staying at my house but shadowing me around wherever I go, what would happen in such a scenario? You'd see the good, you'd see the bad, you'd see the ugly of me. Oh, on Sunday morning you get to see the, I hope, one of the better sides of me. And, I, and I'm probably uh, accurate in saying that it's true for each one of you here as well. That when we come on Sunday, we tend to get the best side. But you'd get to see, if you shadowed me around, you'd get to see how... I respond to my wife, how I answer my children, how I interact with them, how I handle myself on the telephone talking with people, how I respond to someone's inappropriate email, perhaps. You'd see me gathering my family for worship on an evening, but you'd also see me whenever I'm not in a good mood. You'd you'd see that if you followed me around, you would pick up on that probably. You'd see me praying. You'd hear me bouncing my thoughts off, off the wall in my office as I'm studying throughout the week. I'm, I'm talking to myself in the office, writing things on the wall, not on the wall, but on the boards on the wall. You'd see all of that. There's a lot of things that you'd see. And over time, you would start to get a good picture of my heart. You'd get a, a real picture. You'd be able to see what really motivates me. What, what drives me. Well, the palace guard had a front row seat to Paul's life. One guard hooked on for some period of time, and Paul saw this as an opportunity to influence for the gospel's sake. Another guard comes in to work, and he does so right in the midst of Paul's teaching. I mean, think about what Paul was doing. He had freedom. There were people coming and going, and he had the opportunity to preach and teach. Think about the guards as they're coming in off shift. There's a new one coming in. And perhaps they come right in the middle of his teaching. Perhaps another guard comes in right in the midst as, as shift changes, and, and Paul is praying. Perhaps another guard comes in and, and, and actually is in the midst of Paul dictating his letter to the church at Philippi. I mean, think about all of what could happen in the life of Paul as he's, as he's there in prison. He's not going anywhere. The message of Jesus Christ is being told through the life of Paul. Listen, through the life of Paul. It's not just that the Roman soldiers associated his imprisonment with Christ. I believe the palace guard became so familiar with Paul's life. It was his life that made the difference to these palace guards. You see, influencing the lost, it was not his proclamation so much as it was his life. His life. His life imitated the one he professed to follow. And it sent a clear message to all of the guards and the rest who happened to be watching. This is the way, friends, we influence in particular the lost. Let them see your life. They know you're a churchgoer. They've got some idea, probably, that you are a Christian. When the gospel serves as your motivation for living, you're going to influence them by showing them, by living it clearly right before their eyes. The palace guard got a long, good look at Paul, and it became evident. This guy's for real. He's a Jesus guy. No doubt about it. And when you read the end of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul is closing the letter and he says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. <laughs> especially those who are of Caesar's household. Well, How does Caesar's household know about all this? I got a suspicion that they know about it through several of these guards that came in and spent time with Paul. Perhaps our prayer in this is, Lord, let my life become so evident, so permeated with gospel motivation that others can't miss it. Let my life, not my light, let my life shine so brightly that people walk away with clarity about this Jesus and curiosity about how they might live this same way. So there's this first kind of influence toward the lost. But here in verse 14, we see, another kind of influence, and it's an influence to the believer, to the believer. We see this on numerous occasions as Paul is traveling on his missionary journeys to visit a city. He's, he's going to, a lot of times he'll circle back around to encourage and strengthen the brethren, right? To, he'll pass by maybe then for another trip. And verse 14 says that most of the brethren... Having become more confident by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Friends, don't discount what God can do in the midst of your prison circumstance. You might think that your bondage serves zero purpose. You might feel like no one cares. No one's watching. Nothing's gonna happen through this. It's through Paul's chains that the believers are bolstered in their faith. Don't miss that. Instead of fearful, they become bold. Instead of fearful, they become uh, daring. They become risk takers. Instead of shying away from speaking for Christ, which actually seems to be the implication here in the text, not so much the content of what they're saying, but the actual speaking. They're speaking now. Because of what Paul is in the midst of. Because of his circumstance. And his circumstance now influencing them to do what up to this point they hadn't been doing. They hadn't been speaking. Before Paul comes on the scene, the disciples are cowering. There's some believers in Rome before he comes on the scene. But it seems that the disciples are, are, they're, they're cowering. They're somewhat fearful. Godly influence. Changes things. Paul's influence goes both ways. In all places, a Roman prison. And yet it's because he's so gospel motivated that God expands his influence to reach the believers in Rome along with the pagan guards and worldly household of Caesar. Only God. Only God. I hope you're beginning to see the difference maker of living life with a gospel motivation Let me share one more change that happens when the gospel motivator is working in us. Gospel motivated living changes how we handle our response. How we handle our response. This is so rich, so helpful, so helpful. Gospel motivated living changes how we handle our response. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ. Some, some indeed he just talked about the brethren most of the brethren some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill then 16 and 17 he's going to break out each one of those groups from 15 the former preach Christ from selfish ambition not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel These last verses teach me a whole lot about why I'm here, what I'm doing, my my big picture purpose on this earth. And what these verses show us, I need to make this this clear up front here. These are hard verses, by the way, uh, especially the ones that speak of some preaching Christ from selfish ambition. It's hard to think and consider someone preaching Christ from selfish ambition trying to add affliction even to Paul while he's in his own prison circumstance. Gospel-motivated living teaches us how not to respond when others wrong us. And yet here, through the Apostle Paul, we're shown an example of how to handle our response. Verses 15 through 17, they go together. And verse 18 is, is the culmination Asking a very pertinent question, what then? Or what really matters to me? Or we could probably word it this way, so what? So what? Like, what's the big idea? What's, what's the bottom line for me, Paul? In light of all of this that I'm hearing going on, and in light of people trying to add affliction to me while I'm in prison, what's my response going to be? Well, verse 15 lays out the two parties, and we assume from the context that both parties are part of the most from verse 14, some indeed even preach Christ from envy and strife. And some also from goodwill. So verse 16 then elaborates on those who are preaching Christ from selfish ambition, envy and strife. They have a certain motive about them, don't they? And so some who preach Christ do so with this envy and strife. It's interesting to think about for just a moment because, you know, there was a time as I was reading this, I just always assumed that these folks who were preaching out of selfish ambition, preaching out of envy and strife, I just always assumed that these were like false teachers. But the more I read the text, the more I come to understand it's not that they have wrong theology. It's, it's that their motive Talking about motives. Their motive for preaching Christ isn't to give God the glory. Their motive, it seems, for preaching Christ is to get Paul into trouble, more trouble, to kind of rub salt in the wound, if you will, in Paul. These folks appear to be believers. I want you to notice from the text, it says they preach Christ. So, a good question to ask is who were these folks? One writer gives us a little bit of insight into these folks. He says, for starters, they were not heretics or apostates. They were not preaching another gospel or another Christ. If they had been, Paul would have said, more than likely, as he said back in Galatians chapter 1, 8 and 9, about those who were preaching another gospel, let them be accursed. Paul would have said something about what they were preaching. Paul's detractors were preaching the biblical Jesus. Listen to what he says. They were not anti Christ, but anti Paul. These were believers leveraging themselves against Paul, preaching Christ, but for selfish gain, to advance themselves in a favorable light, and at the same time cast an even darker shadow, if possible, on Paul being in prison, chained up. Paul is not in any position to defend himself against these detractors. There's a whole lot of things we don't know from the text in terms of why they're doing this. But the beauty of the text is that Paul doesn't even feel the need to defend himself. This is big. (laughs) This speaks volumes. It's convicting when we stop for just a moment to consider his response in light of his situation. There are some people around Rome preaching Christ but trashing Paul. What makes this a little more difficult is that the people who are doing this are professed believers. Envy and strife, selfish ambition. Let's not think for a moment either at church that these are absent in the church of Jesus Christ today. Unfortunately, they do, still exist. Envy has been defined as the desire to deprive others of what is rightfully theirs or to wish that they did not have it or that they had it in a lesser degree. We see that in the life of Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 18, Pilate knew that, The Jews had handed him over because of envy. Pilate recognized that. Greek historian is quoted by talking about, he says, the envious are those annoyed only at their friends' successes. So he says, envy is more set on depriving the other person of the desired thing than on gaining it. You get the idea of envy? Envy. You want to keep somebody from something. It's not so much that you want it, whatever that may be, but you're most concerned about keeping them from it. And strife. Strife is contention. Contention with this spirit of enmity, hostility. Envy leads to competition, to hostility, to conflict. What's your response to people who are motivated to add affliction to your life? There's a question for you to consider. What's your response to people who are motivated to add affliction to your own life? How do you respond when people say things about you to harm you or discredit you? Sinclair Ferguson has has written something here that I found very helpful personally and I'd just like to share it with you. Speaking to Paul's situation here. Rather than allow their sin to eat away at his soul, discourage him and potentially introduce a note of cynicism in his life, Paul refused to allow himself to be diverted from the main business of his ministry, exalting the name of his Lord Jesus Christ. The wrong motives... Of bad men must never be allowed to become the determining element in our attitude to either our own lives or the fellowship of the saints. And that is often a great snare for Christians who are committed to the truth of the gospel. It's very easy, he writes, to develop a streak of bitterness in our spirits when we see the errors of other proclaiming Christians... The way in which we present the gospel can then be dominated by our criticism of others rather than a presentation of Jesus. The result, he says, is an unattractive harshness which does not commend Christ. We learn from Paul that recognizing false motives and even errors in others need not produce an unChrist-like temperament so long as the one concern is of our lives is to honor Christ, we will be safeguarded. And he concludes in this way and says, motives matter, but we must never allow the motives of others to devour us. We must not ever, we must never allow the motives of others to devour us. We must reserve in our hearts a sanctuary of love for Jesus Christ. Those are some good words, some helpful words. We look at the text and we see this group preaching Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, not genuinely, because their motive was to add affliction to Paul. Verse 17, this latter group, this group that preached from goodwill, they preached Christ out of goodwill out of what was going to be helpful for others. Paul's in prison and there's, there are a group of brothers who are, who are preaching Christ. They've been emboldened to speak and they're doing so out of love for Paul and out of their love for the Lord. Out of their love for others. Pure motives. There is a sincerity in what they're preaching. That's the contrast in verse 17. You see, these, are, these that are preaching out of love, they understand that Paul is in prison they understand his circumstance that he's been set he's been appointed he's been fixed as a defender of the gospel see there are some of these believers who get why paul is where he is they get that he's in prison and they get that paul is going to influence people even in prison for some this is not a surprise because for some they understand the power of the gospel And they understand Paul's plight. So it concludes then in verse 18. What then? What really matters? Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense, whether in pretense, that's describing the folks who are preaching out of envy and strife, selfish ambition, Whether in pretense or in truth, whether with false motive or with pure motive, Christ is preached. Christ is preached. What really matters? Christ. That's the bottom line he says here. That's what matters. Christ is preached. We don't get any word here about pointing a finger at anybody who said anything bad about him. Why? Because the gospel has motivated him in such a way that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that Christ is preached. Christ is being preached. Christ's name is going out. Friends, this is This is so important when we look at and see the text in in 2 Corinthians. I'll leave you with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ is the driving force. The love of Christ is the motivator. For all that we do. And he goes on, he said, here's why. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, that's Jesus, died for all, then all died. And he died for all, fact. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. See, when the gospel is your motivation for living, you now, It's sort of like what he says in Galatians 2, verse 20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me, and I live by faith in the one who died and gave himself for me. Gospel motivation changes the way we live, it changes the way we view our circumstance, whatever that circumstance might be. It changes how we define our influence. Influence doesn't stop just because we find ourselves in a bad situation, circumstance. How we handle our response to people. When people wrongly say things about us. Are we more concerned about what they've said? Or are we most concerned about Christ in his name being exalted? Christ in his name being proclaimed. centrality of the gospel is the great question and challenge for us. Is the gospel first and foremost in our lives and in our church? The answer to that will determine our future. The gospel motivator is the title of the message. I appreciated that. Avery sharing the story of the, the two men, Jim Elliott, and Dirk Williams. Obvious and evident by their stories. The gospel was in them. These were gospel men. You know, there's a drink that's out today, and for a long time the, the slogan has been, Is it in you? You probably know the drink. Maybe you don't. It's Gatorade. Is it in you? Something far more significant and important than Gatorade being in you is the gospel. Is the gospel motivator in you? I pray that it is for the sake of the Lord, for His honor and His glory. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for this word, thank you Lord for teaching us this morning through the life of Paul, through the life of your son Jesus, showing us what this life is intended to be as it embraces this gospel motive for living. We see Paul, he's in prison and Lord there's not a whole lot he can do in this particular moment. And yet he's, he's hearing that there are some preaching Christ out of envy and selfish ambition. They're, they're preaching in a way to provoke him, to, to get him perhaps into further uh, trouble. They're perhaps preaching a certain way, knowing that Paul is unavailable. Saying things about Paul that perhaps they wouldn't say to him if he was there beside them. Lord, all kinds of motives, mixed motives in their preaching. And yet we see how Paul handles the response as he asks the question, what really matters to me? In light of all that's going on, in light of what I'm hearing, what really matters is that Christ in his name is being preached. And God, I pray for this church and I pray that we would Embrace this idea of seeing that the gospel gets out, that it moves forward, that it advances, that it makes progress. And help us, Lord, in our lives not to put a halt to your gospel progress by the way we live our lives. We are your children. We are the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, I pray it's our desire to follow you wherever you lead us. And that we would trust that you are a God who's faithful and just. And that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, that, Lord, you meet us there, that you'll be there with us. You've promised to be there with us. You've promised to not leave us nor forsake us. You've promised to go with us to the end of the age. So, Lord, I pray that we would exert influence in whatever circumstance we find ourselves influencing others, both the lost and those who are believers, that we would be about setting an example for the believers, even here in this place. Teach us, Lord, continue to teach us as we've looked at your word this morning. Continue to shine your light through your spirit, showing us, Lord, how you would desire for us to live these things out for your honor and glory. I pray that you'd be pleased with our lives as we are motivated by the gospel and then moved by the gospel to impact and influence the world we live in here. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.